Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church. Excited to be here with you. My name's Corey, one of the pastors on staff. I get to be your teaching pastor uh, for today and excited to get to do that. Congrats to the family on baptism. Everything David said is sufficient, but it was beautiful to to watch. And so uh, for our guests uh, that are in the room, we uh, preach straight through books of the Bible here at Heights Community. And so we're currently uh, in the book of Hebrews, and so we're rolling, kind of trucking through the book of Hebrews, and so I'll give you a, a little bit of a refresher, uh, just to kind of bring us all together and on the same page, and so uh, last week, uh, I continued with the theme of what we call tasting and trusting, which you would have just heard in some of our uh, worship and liturgies, we were just walked through that, and we've been looking at kind of the, the difference between seeing Jesus of, as Lord or Savior and seeing Jesus as Lord and Savior. That word or or and in the middle there makes all the difference. And so for their culture, they were told that you could have Jesus as Savior, but you could not have Jesus as Lord. Just chalk him up to be someone supernatural like the angels. That was the first couple of chapters. And so they said you could have Jesus in the supernatural. You could have a personal relationship with Jesus. You can experience Jesus. He just cannot be your Lord. And so the tension that they're wrestling with is I would argue the same tension that we wrestle with today and that we like to view Jesus as Lord or we like to view him as Savior. And the way that we've talked about that over the last couple months is, uh, I've said and David has said, we, when we view Jesus as Lord, we kind of keep him up high. He's unreachable. We might say, them, say some things like he's worthy of honor, he's worthy of worship, but at the same time, he's also kind of like Dumbledore out there in the clouds somewhere and he's not, you're not really known by him. He's just kind of this figure that exists. And at the same time, we can say, well, maybe he's not that. Maybe he's just savior. And so he's Jesus down low and he's this suffering Jesus that comes and saves and does miracles. But the problem with only viewing Jesus as savior then is you just look for the miracle. You kind of just come to him to appease you and meet your needs in those moments. You guys tracking with all that? Sound, should sound very familiar to you. And so last week, as we enter into the text this week, we have to kind of uh, reread a little bit to get some context. And so let me build out a little bit of an introduction here for you. And then we're going to camp out looking at Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. And then I'm going to tell you why it matters and how we're going to respond to that. But let's continue with Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 for now as we build out this introduction It says, and we desire each one of you, listen here, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. That was a reference to the previous chapter when he told them they had become dim of hearing, so that you may not be sluggish, same word in the Greek, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It is through, he says, imitation of those who come before, like Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, that your salvation will in fact be evident. It is through imitation of those who come before that your salvation will be evident. And so even if you were here last week or if you watched uh, online, you might recall that I said it was their works that were evidence of their salvation, but their works were not the means of their salvation. Again, subtle but very important. 
He's not saying your really good work is what has saved you and redeemed you, but rather whenever you model the work of the saints that have come before you, you actually begin to model the gospel in a very real, practical way. We know that you've experienced salvation because of your works, not by your works. Is that abundantly clear as well? It's also very important. We don't turn to legalism in this moment. And so what he's kind of setting up here for us uh, in the text is that we will know that you've had hope. We know that you'll remain steadfast. We know that you've been patient because we know how those have walked before you. And what we see in you, listen to me, what we see in you is the same things that we saw in them. And so we're looking here at the Old Testament and we're reading the covenants and we're seeing how the people of God have responded to God based off his holiness, based off his character. And he's saying, my, 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 we see this in you, church. This is how we know you have been saved. You guys still with me on that? Okay, so it's kind of a lot because it's a very, it's a dense text for today. And so this setup is important. So it is God's covenant, okay, his covenants, plural, that lead us from tasting to trusting. And so you need to know God's covenants. You need to know his word and see his faithfulness. And in so doing, you'll simultaneously become more aware of God's character. And as you know God's character, as you grow an understanding of his character, oh, it's gonna lead you back to his covenants. And those two things are going to complement one another. God's character and God's covenants will complement. Let me show you this in three questions. Simple questions for you if you're learning how to read the Bible this morning. Three simple questions you can ask of any text and you'll walk away better for it. What did God do? Just based off the text, what did God do? It sounds like a DNA question, doesn't it? What did God do? Why does it matter? Every week I try to prove the Bible wrong and it keeps winning. Why does it matter? And how do we respond? How do we respond uh, to this text? One big idea for you this morning, church family, God's character and covenants complement one another. That's the line that we're gonna run today. God's character and covenants compliment. That's with an E. They're not out there saying like, my, how good you look today. Not that sort of compliment. This is a, they need each other. They require one another. They finalize one another. All right, let's get started. What did God do? First question. Everybody say first question. All right. Hebrews 6, 13 through 15. If you're ready, say ready. All right, well, let's go storm the gates. Verse 13. For when God made a promise, listen here, for when God made a promise to Abraham, Listen, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, okay, he swore by himself. He's not saying he's out in the wilderness, just hanging out by himself, making promises because there's no one else around. He's saying, no, there was no greater name. There was no greater character. There was no greater deity. There was and is no one greater, so he swore by himself. By myself, I swear, is what he says in Genesis, saying then, surely I will Bless you and multiply you, talking to Abraham, verse 15. And thus Abraham, having heard that and patiently waited, he obtained the promise. And so the author here, I gotta, again, kind of build this out. It's a little lengthy, but bear with me. The author here is making reference to the book of Genesis. Now, Abraham shows up a lot in the book of Genesis, but specifically of the text today, he's making reference of Genesis 15 and of Genesis 22. And so we don't have time to read all of that. I'm already going to go over on time. You know that. And so let me just sum it up for you, okay? Genesis 15, God promises Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a son who they're going to later call Isaac, this promised son. Now, what's interesting about that is that Abraham and Sarah are very old in age, and they're also barren. So this is a bit of an audacious promise here for the king of kings and the lord of lords to deliver. 
saying, I'm seeing your infertility. I recognize the struggle that has happened there. I understand that you're in this season of doubt. And also, I'm gonna give you everything that you're longing for in this child. And we later find out his name is Isaac. And then, that's Genesis 15. Genesis 22 then, God calls Abraham and Sarah, but specifically Abraham here, to sacrifice this promised son. Like, think about that. He, he sees their Walking through this barrenness, he gives them this promise. Hey, we're gonna, I'm gonna meet your needs in this child. And then once the child is born and he's of an appropriate age, then the father, God, comes to Abraham and is like, oh, by the way, I'm gonna need you to put him to death. Yeah, how would your Tuesday go if that was you? Right, why would God do that? What's the purpose there? Well, part of the story is to show Abraham and Sarah's faithfulness unto the Lord. And that's an aspect of the story. It's important to note their covenant faithfulness. Did they believe? Did they not believe? Did they submit to the character of God? Would they not submit to the character of God? That's part of it. The other half of it is that to show God's faithfulness unto his people. Is God everything that he says he is? Is God's character what he has claimed it to be? Is God going to remain covenantally faithful? Is he going to stick to the covenant or stick to the promise? And so if you're uncertain what that word covenant means, it means to promise. It's not a contract, though. It's a, this is important, legally binding promise. It is a, also a spiritual binding promise. So for those of you that take notes, it is a covenant is both legally binding and also spiritually binding. When you think about a wedding, and, and praise God, I've got to do a, a ton of weddings now in my ministry. I love getting to do weddings. When you think about a wedding, whether you realize it or not, you think about covenant. Like you might not know the language, you might think about it in, in that way, like using those terms, but that is what is happening in you. I would even argue that's much of what you find attractive even about that day, the covenant faithfulness of two people coming together. And so what happens whenever a guy and gal are standing up in there in front of me and I lead them to say some things, I'm leading them to say some really bold things, also some pretty audacious things. And what they're submitting to in that moment between or before me and before you all as witnesses, is that there is a God, in our case here, there is a very real Jesus. There is a God that stands at the head of that covenant, at the head of that family, at the head of that marriage. Now, whether they walk it out in submission to that or not, time will tell, yes? But that's what they're saying. And then not only that is that they're saying we are spiritually bound to one another under the authority and headship of Christ. That's a loud, bold claim to make in front of people. Simultaneously, they're saying, not only are we spiritually bound to one another under the headship of Christ, but we are legally bound to one another under the headship and authority of Christ. And so even whenever I have to, <laughs> whenever I have to preach a wedding, I'll say at some point, right, by the power invested in me by God, which matters, and unfortunately by the state of Illinois, which does not matter in many cases, I have to still say that. Why? Because it is spiritually binding and it is regardless of Illinois' view. Like you'd go marry your pug right now if you wanted to and they'd be like, oh, you're so brave. Thank you. So courageous. Make a flag for that person, right? So get stickers. Regardless of how Illinois thinks about it, okay, the Bible is very clear. There is a covenant binding that happens both legally and spiritually. We still tracking? I didn't get us too far off there. Okay. I came back to the notes. You saw that, right? I was like, mm. it's like a magnetic pull. The spirit was like, no, 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 no. Okay. 
This truth here, okay, this is super important for you. If you don't understand, you don't have to understand every aspect of covenant per se, but you do have to understand that there is a legal and spiritual consequence. You do have to know that in order to understand the rest of this, to be quite honest. And so the author here, pin that for a moment, the author of Hebrews then is inviting us into the story, and he's inviting us like to recall this covenant, them specifically, because as the Hebrews, they knew this covenant, like inside and out, they had it completely and totally memorized, they would have known all the Jewish application for this covenant, and so he's inviting the congregation, he's saying, hey, come recall the covenant, recall what has happened with Abraham, and not only that, but he's simultaneously then inviting them, inviting us to see a family move from tasting to trusting, like, are they going to taste and see that he's good, or are they going to trust and see that he's good? And so he's kind of stirring up all these affections in them and hopefully in you in this moment. And that's all Genesis 22, for the most part. Genesis 55, or 15, no 55. Genesis 15, God makes now, he's made this covenant. He comes back to Abraham as um, Abraham's taken up Isaac, and he provides, and he says, hey, you don't have to sacrifice your son. That was never really the thing. Just testing your faithfulness there. Good job you used the dull knife. And at the same time, he provides a ram for Abraham. Now, what is the significance there? Well, hopefully you're being formed in the gospel here, and you can see that the whole thing is foreshadowing that there's a better father, and there's a better son, and there's a better sacrifice that is going to atone for all people who submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Hopefully you see that in the story since we have the whole Word. Now, keep in mind here, okay, uh, God has provided this out, provided this thing. What's beautiful about this, in this moment, and God help me, I prayed earlier, like, in the service, I was like, Holy Spirit, help me be clear. Here's what is so beautiful about this. The moment that Abraham is, you know, welcomed over to God, and Isaac is taken off the altar, God, in that moment, then, in Genesis uh, sorry, Genesis 22. I got my Genesis mixed up. Genesis 22, in that moment, God looks at Abraham and he says, I'm going to make an oath that I'm going to uphold this covenant for you. And so there's this, there's this beautiful reality here where there's a, a lot of things at play, and, and it's, it's much to say, but there's this reality where back in 15, Abraham has made a covenant with Abraham, with Sarah, saying you're going to get this promised kid. Abraham, just like us, church, in that moment of God's faithfulness, Abraham looks at God and says, how am I gonna know? Like, how am I gonna know you're good? Tell me in this room, you've not looked at the Father and said, how do I know you're everything you say you are? How do I know that you're good? How do I know you're gonna provide? And this is exactly what Father Abe does. And he goes, how do I know I'm gonna inherit the land? How do I know I'm gonna get a son? And in this really intense moment there in the book of Genesis, the Father responds and he says, get me a heifer. And you read that and you go, what the heck? How's that your response? You know, like, there's this crazy intimate moment here, and the father's like, give me a heifer. Well, culturally appropriate for them, not so much for us. In that moment, though, God takes that heifer, he cuts that mother in half, and then he passes through it himself, symbolizing to Abraham as part of the covenant seal there that if I do not keep my promise to you, let me be cut off. That's what covenant ultimately means, to be cut. And so in that moment, what the father is saying to Father Abraham and to Sarah is in this moment, if I do not keep my end of the bargain, if I don't keep my end of the deal, my side of the covenant, you can do this to me. 
I will, be, I will willfully walk in and be cut off physically. I'll be cut off spiritually. I'll be cut off legally from everything that I've ever been designing from the very beginning of the beginning. Do you hear that claim in there? He's saying, this is how sure I am. You fast forward then to Genesis whenever Isaac is being taken off the altar. And God speaks to Abraham again. And then it's in that moment where he goes, I myself have swore by my own name, I will fulfill this covenant. And so there's already been like this crazy awesome claim over here where he cuts the heifer in half, walks through that thing, says, let it be done to me. And then he becomes, because he wants to be even more convincing, it says, he says, let me also make an oath. It's like making a promise within the promise. Does that kind of make sense for you? Okay, about eight of you. That's better. It's usually like two. So I feel like I'm on the Holy Spirit answer just then, you know? What's he doing? Listen, this is so incredibly awesome and profound because... He's not just binding himself like legally and spiritually. Let me put all this together for you. In these moments when he's making these two covenants that he's referencing for us today, Jesus is, well, Jesus is the foreshadowing. God is coming in as the head of that covenant and he's saying, I am Lord. And simultaneously, whenever he offers his own life way before the cross, he says this, I am also your savior. And so even in that covenant, you get Jesus up high and you get Jesus down low. To me, that's, I put in my notes, that's crazy awesome. That's what I put in my notes. I hope that you feel that. Now, this is why the author then continues, and he says this in Hebrews 6, 16 through 17. He says, for people, let me wait, Hebrews 6, 16 through 17. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all of their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it. Guaranteed what? Guaranteed his covenant. Guaranteed his character. Guaranteed his promise with an oath. Like with a second promise. That's the stuff in the Bible I read and I go, shut up. Like that's what you did? And you're like, why would you think that? That's so what I'm here for. Okay, that's why y'all pay me the big bucks. This is what I'm here for. Because here's the deal. There was nothing like that's not anything God has to do. God's word is final. He could have been like, I'm gonna give you a kid. Done. If that was it, if that was like Genesis 15, 11, and that's all we had, I need you to hear me say today, that would be sufficient. Like the word of God would be sufficient. And it's, he does so much more. He cuts this cow, walks in between that thing. Let this be done to me. Makes a secondary oath, promises there's a better father, a better son, there's a better sacrifice that's coming. Like all this is foreshadowing this incredible moment with Jesus. And so in that, there was nothing else to swear by. There was no one else to swear by. There was no one who had greater character than this right here. So when God, think about this, wanted to be more convincing, oh my gosh, the, the links that he's willing to take, church, for us. Like, if you don't know the gospel this morning, let me kind of share it with you like this. You were created in the image of God, and your original parents rebelled against that image and rebelled against that perfect creator. And as a result now, we deserve death and separation from God the Father forevermore. And in Genesis 3, there's something called a covenant that is made where he promises to send his son that will be cut off legally and will be cut off spiritually to atone for our mess, not his mess. And so in that, we know he comes. But in that, we do not deserve one promise. We don't deserve a word. We don't deserve the oath. We deserve, it says, death and separation from the king of kings forevermore. And yet, it is this, listen to me, this perfectly righteous, good, holy, god King of kings, Lord of lords, 
father of all who says, you who deserve death. I am so, I don't even know the word, enamored with you. Like, give me some, a better adjective if you got it. I'm so, like, caught up in, enraptured by my own mercy and grace that I'm going to try to convince you, the heathen that you are, what I'm willing to do for you. My gosh. I wish we were charismatic. Y'all be getting out banners right now, boy. Just, let's go, pastor. Tell them about it. Oh, my gosh. Why does it matter, second point? I feel like we just take communion right now, you know? Why does it matter? I'll tell you. Let me tell you why it matters. I got the microphone and all. Because it's like one of the most incredible things that's ever happened in human history. That's why it matters. And, like, I don't want to get off my notes, but, like, the beautiful reality of this, if you're sitting here as a skeptic, you're like, I don't know about that. Turns out, you can just open a history book. Because what was promised to Abraham, I don't know if you ever heard of a little religion called Judaism that spread like a wildfire for millennia, right? And you're going to be promised many offspring, and you're going to be promised you're going to be the father of many nations. Cats out the bag, church. We're out here 3,500 years later talking about Father Abe. How do you know his covenant's faithful? Look to your left and right. Just behold his character, church. Like, we're here. We are the Gentile, <laughs> celebrating this reality in and through Christ. Why does it matter? Because God does not have to make promises. I want you to think about this with me for a minute. God does not have to make promises, but we do. Have you ever thought about why you make a promise? I'll stop yelling at you for a second. Why do you make a promise? Because you're a liar and your word is no good. Right? Like that's... Let me just rip the band-aid off. That's right, right? Like, why would I say something like, no, really? It's because at some point I've let someone down. And so they got to go, no, 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 really. No, I'm serious. No, I promise. No, I swear. Why do we do that? At the end of the day, we do that because we, dude, we're sinners. And we, we lie. We lie, 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 lie. We lie, right? No, babe, I'm on my way. I'm in the car while you're putting your shoes on. Come on now, Right? We lie. We are not trustworthy. That's the reality of the situation. And so I want you to keep rack your brain a little bit about this. Throw this up for me, Matt, if Matt's still back there. You, I want you to get this line. We are limited by our sin. We are limited by our sin. We can never be perfectly holy. We can never be perfectly righteous. We can never be perfectly good. That's the reality of us. No one in the room, whether you're a Christian or not, would disagree with that statement. No one in here is perfect, yeah? We are limited by our sin, but check this out. God is limited only by his holiness. There's only some things God can't do, can't do because he's holy. Right? There's some things we can't do because of sin, like not lie, for example. But God is limited only by his holiness. Like he doesn't have it in his disposition. It's not in his framework, right? You can go to him and say, lie to me. He's like, I don't have it. I don't keep that chambered on me. I don't know how to... What are you talking about? I don't know. It's something you do. That's not something I do, right? And so when you come to him, like he physically cannot do that. And so what is so great, I'm so jacked about this whole text right here is because like if you and I, if we lie, dude, like, like, it ain't no big deal. It's like it's, it's just expected at this point. We're going to lie to one another. But there is a reality here where because God is limited by his holiness, his word has to be absolute and has to be absolutely upheld. Because like, if I lie to you, maybe we lose a little relationship or you, whatever, some mistrust. But if God says he's going to do something, 
while simultaneously, church, proclaiming his character to be perfect and to be holy and to be just, the moment he breaks any sort of that, it all comes unraveled. Right? If God does not keep his promise to you and keep his promise to me, then there is nothing, to, there's none of this. And so like whenever God says, I'm making a promise, not only can you cut me off, I'm gonna make a promise within this promise. He's not just like betting the farm. Like he's betting his character. He's betting his position, his authority, his supremeness as ruler over all things. And then the moment like a dot doesn't get put into something, he's saying, all of that comes crumbling down. And he does that for us. Why? To convince us. When he desired more convincingly, he did so by two traits, by his character and by his covenant. God has literally everything riding on his word. Everything. And we can fact check it. Ooh, what if somebody opened up the book of your life and went and fact checked everything you said you were going to do? Lord, give us communion. We need to repent. Right? Listen, we let people down verbally all the time. It's whatever. It is what it is. Not saying that's okay. I'm just saying it is the reality of our situation. But God, because he bets his character, can never let you down. Like he has to remain faithful to his word. His covenants and his character have to be coincided. They have to complement one another. So whenever God promised and God made a covenant, what he said and let me be cut off spiritually or let me be removed physically was literally as he swore by himself, he said, everything that you deserve for your rebellion in the garden, I'm going to take into myself. And then he does it when we get to the gospel. He swore by himself. What sort of God, church, wants to be more convincing to those who deserve nothing? What sort of God does that? Only him. You need only to look at his covenants, church, and his character, and you will find it. This is such a beautiful reality for us because just as King, just sorry, just as Father Abraham asked this question, man, how can I know you're good? How can I know you love me? How can I know you won't leave me or forsaken you? How can I know? Gosh, has that not been your plea? Has that not been the plea in the midst of your darkest moments? And yet the Holy Spirit through this through the word right here says, hey, all you need to do is recall my covenant faithfulness. Look at how those who follow me responded in faith. And as you look at that, it'll begin, Holy Spirit begins to change your character to look like Christ. But as you see your brothers and sisters that come before, man, it begins to ignite in you this desire to follow out these covenants and his character. And then he says, and lo and behold, as you do so, oh, people will know that you're of the faith because you have been a good imitator. That's that whole section right there. We need to stay with his covenants and his character. Now, here's two things that we can do as I reflected on that this week. I believe there's two things we can do as we come to this text. Uh, we can either minimize the text or we can try to add to the text. I think this is worth camping in before we get into some more. And so what I mean by that, if you're taking notes and if you want to Baptist alliteration a little bit, uh, we can turn to leniency or we can turn to law or legalism. We can turn to leniency or we can turn to law. And so as we read something just so profound as this, in leniency we can do this. It probably doesn't mean what it says. Where do you think that like boring, dull voice comes from when you read the Bible? Right? That's a spirit of leniency coming in. Saying, I just don't, it, could, it probably doesn't mean exactly what it says it means. Let me tell you today, church, it means exactly what it says it means. 
that this Lord wanted to convince you, and he has done so. Simultaneously, we can look to law. We can be legalistic about that is what I mean. And so then you can come into like this beautifully orchestrated text that we have here in the book of Hebrews, and you go, oh, gosh, I see that. Like, he fulfills his covenants, and his character is great. He's done everything necessary to bring salvation, but I just feel like I need to do a little bit more. If I could just read the right thing or pray the right prayer or say, you know, say the right thing in this scenario, then maybe I would have some identity. Like, I'm seeing and reading this, but what happens then is we begin to le- read legalism into the text, and we go, surely that's not good enough. Oh, if I may quote Tim Keller today, God rest his soul this week. The gospel is not too hard to believe because it offers too little. Rather, it's so hard to believe because it offers too much. He says, no, no, no. Read the covenant. Read the whole thing, the whole book, and you will see that there is a God who stands at the head of that thing who is willing himself to step in and do literally everything we can never do for ourselves, which is bring salvation. He says there is no room for leniency or licentiousness. There is no room for law or legalism. There is only room for Christ. And he stands at the head of this covenant. And so God in his holiness has given us this word today to be able to taste and see and hopefully move from tasting into trusting his goodness. About a year, last year sometime, some of you will remember this, Man, I had, a, I had three weeks that were really, uh, really trying. They were really difficult uh, for me, and not only me, but also for our elder team, for staff. We were walking through some really difficult things with some families. And so uh, week one, we got blindsided by some things we just didn't see uh, coming with a few families and rocked us. It was really hard and difficult. Week two, if you were, many of you were there, uh, some of you were there. Our church has grown quite a bit. I had to preach through a retinal migraine. Any of you there when I had to preach through a retinal migraine? I lost my, most of my vision. I could not read words. My face and mouth was numb. It was a horrific, it wasn't horrific, it was a bad experience. And it happened about 20 minutes before I got up on stage. And so we didn't know that it was coming. And like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm going to preach, bro. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I'm here to do. I preached. Uh, Dr. Jake had to like massage the back of my neck to try to get vision back where it was supposed to be. And it was just a really hard uh, time. And you all loved me well. We laughed together. I got all tongue-tied if you were there. I remember that. I want to say this church has ministered to me far more than I've ministered, ministered to her. So thank you. But then week three was like super hard. And it was a great deal of spiritual warfare. Now in the Reformed Church, we don't talk enough about spiritual warfare. And we don't chalk everything up to Satan. But um, it was intense. And I woke up that Sunday morning and woke up early. And I just had this loud voice in my head that was, I think, demonic. And it was like, you don't, hey, they don't need you. Uh, you, you could go somewhere else. Uh, you could just not show up today. It was Sunday morning, keep in mind. I'm slaughtered to preach. You could just not show up today. It's no big deal. They would just hire someone else. Here's the one he hit me with. There would be minimal damage. <laughs> could you just imagine me just not showing up? I think it would be more than minimal damage. You know, I hope it would be more than minimal damage, right? You could better shepherd your family uh, somewhere else. Just go get a secular job, make more money, don't worry about all the drama. You don't have to worry about all the things you have to do with church discipline. Just don't worry about it. Oh, your kids would be better off if you just worked somewhere else. This is like, anyone else had these lies come in their mind? Okay, I'm not the only one. Okay, thank you. And so it's worth, this is the things we need to talk about to kind of normalize it. So anyway, that's hit me, man. Emma walks in my room, the sweet, sweet little girl. Andrea was working. Emma comes in. She's like, Dad, I just had the Bible out reading it out loud. 
was like, I don't know what else to do. I'm talking to my daughter. I'm like, babe, it's a, we call it like yo-yo, like you're on your own. I was like, it's going to be a yo-yo morning, girl. I'm having a moment over here. And so she's like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm just going to read the Bible, just help get the boys ready. So I'm just reading scripture out loud so that it spoke louder to me in that moment than the things that I was hearing in my head that weren't completely true. And then we show up. I, get, I show up. I get to church finally and juggle the kids, get them there, show up to our morning meeting that we have every Sunday morning before. And I walk in. Everybody's like chipper, like, hey, I got Corey. I was like, hey, PC. How you doing? Hey, Pastor. What's up? How are you? And I was like, I don't even want to be here. And I believe it was Mark Hanna who goes, well, let's pray the demons out then. Yeah. That's why he's a worship leader. Let's pray them demons out. So they like lay hands on me and they start praying for me and I didn't feel any better. I'm going to be completely transparent. I was thankful for the gesture. I knew that was the right move, but I was like, okay, let's, I got to go preach this sermon. Second service, I want to be gracious with my speech here. Second service, we have a sweet lady uh, falls out due to a heart attack, I believe, in the, in the beginning of the gathering. We have nurses, doctors in the room, they come around. And I just knew like, this is not strictly physical. This is also spiritual. And I don't, again, I don't chalk everything up to Satan. I don't think I'm a big enough deal for Satan. I always call this guy Carl. I think he'd give me a guy named Carl, you know. He's kind of, sorry if your name's Carl in the room. <laughs> I hate Carl, not you if you're here. But I like pray for Carl's salvation just to make him mad in the morning, you know. Like I just want to give him a bad day. I'm like, come on, Lord, just show him your presence today, you know. I just want to punch Carl in the face. And so let's do it. I go home, talking with Andrea. Dathan's yeah, there, my nephew, and. I just broke emotionally. And I was like, man, I don't want to do this anymore. And it wasn't that I wanted to like quit heights. It was that it was the first time I felt defeat in 14 years of walking with the Lord. And I was just like, I've lost. I didn't want to do ministry anymore, which is in some ways a little bit more terrifying. And being a good, incredible, godly wife that she is, said this really stupid thing. And she said to me, uh, we don't run from hard things, Corey. We run into them. And I thought, oh, I love you. And also, I kind of like you less right now. <laughs> and then she just laid her little frame over me and prayed for me. And so the next day, all this to share, I'm taking you somewhere here. Uh, the next day, as I was just pleading with God, not to be clear, not feeling him, just longing for him. Are we tracking on that? This is a real, this is a real talk right here. This happens. The Lord and the Spirit very sweetly took me to Hebrews 6, 18 through 19, which is our next couple of verses. And here's what it says. I'm not going to try to impute my emotion upon you. I just want you to come behold the majesty of Christ with me. It says, so, gosh, here it goes. So that by two unchangeable things, that's his character and his covenants, and we've seen that so far, in which it is impossible for God to lie because he would squander both of those. We who have, oh, hear me, fled for refuge, like found our safety in Christ. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast, it's covenant language, to the hope set before us. We have this as a, quote, sure and steady anchor of the soul, church, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's going to tell us in a minute that that's Jesus. And so I know I'm not the only one that sets under the, in the midst of maybe the effects of sin or sin or guilt or shame and has these voices that kind of come in and say, hey, you could do better. They, could, they deserve more. You could do this. You could do that. I want to tell you that's straight out of the pit of hell because that's not the way a father speaks to his son or daughter. 
This is how he speaks. And what, what does he say in there? Flee for refuge. Have strong encouragement. Hold fast to the hope. You have a sure and steady anchor of the soul. There's a hope that enters in for you. And I just read it, man, like over and over and over and over again. For three straight weeks, I read this probably, I mean, like 30 times a day. I would just read it and then I would write it. Flee for refuge. Have strong encouragement. Hold fast to the hope. You have a sure and steady anchor. There's a hope that enters. I'm like, I don't feel that. I'd read it. I don't feel that. Read it. I don't feel, like, I need this to be real. I'm like pleading with the Father for weeks that this right here would actually be everything that it says that it's it, that it is. And so you might be in here today and you ask, like, what do I do whenever I respond like Abraham and I go, how will I know? How do I know you're good? How do I know I'm going to inherit the things you said? How do I know that your character is everything it says it is? How do I know I can trust your covenants? How do I know? Right? He's not going to look at you and say, bring me the heifer. But he's going to say, oh, I gave you my son. That's how you know. Jesus is the better heifer. <laughs> right? He's cut off legally. He's cut off spiritually. I had to bring some tension, break the tension. He's, he's everything that was promised to you. You still track with me. Amen? And so then there's, there's these moments then where we come, and I'm telling you, it's seasons sometimes, not even just moments where you're going to feel as if the Lord is distant and disconnected from you. And what's beautiful is that we can look to his covenant and see his faithfulness and see his character and go, mine doesn't match that right now, and it doesn't have to. I don't have to be licentious and run away and do nothing. I don't have to be legalistic and try to cut myself to earn something. Rather, with a great deal of hope, it says, and encouragement, I can allow the word of God to anchor me. Church, you can allow the word of God to anchor you in Christ. You can allow the word of God to anchor you in his promises. And he will. And he's good. And sometimes you don't necessarily hear him, but you can read him. And you can plead and you can beg for him to show up for you. And he will, and what will happen as you plea, as you long, as you beg, you will move from tasting to trusting. And as you trust more, oh, you'll taste more. And as you taste more, you'll trust more. And then there'll be a season, because we don't believe in a prosperity gospel, where you might hit the bank again. You might duck down again. And then you just run to him again, and you taste, and you try and pray to trust, and taste, and trust, until the Spirit opens up a door and says, hey, I've been standing here the whole time. How do we respond then to this text? I think I just told you, but let me tell you again. How do we respond? Verse uh, 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain. This is a temple language here where we were most certainly never allowed to go. Only priests could go. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That explanation is coming tomorrow. There's three things that he tells us to do, though, based off this text. The first one is this. You've got to be anchored. We don't do a lot of application, but we're going to today. You've got to be anchored. You've got to be anchored in his word. You've got to run to his word. You need to know his word. And then you, here's the trick, though, but then you allow the word to anchor you in Christ. Right? You're not going to muster that up in and of yourself, but as you experience and plea with God and you go to God's people, there's a very real Holy Spirit that, as the book of Ephesians says, has sealed you in the covenant promises, and he will, over time, begin to re-expose uh, himself to you in ways where he looks like the God on high that he is, and also the Savior down low that you need in that moment. But you have to let the word of God anchor you. Oh, to quote Tim Keller again, as you begin to open up the word of God, it begins to open you. And as you begin to read the word of God, then it begins to read you. But you got to get with it. you got to get with it. 
As to quote the book of Hebrews, it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword to cut through bone and marrow. Church, you need to be cut, not for your salvation, but because of your salvation. Let the word of God open you up. Second thing, see the hope. I think our team's going to come out here. See the hope. Uh, you just have to see Jesus. Like, just come behold the majesty of Christ. And I believe you have. Like there's a great, the prince of, uh, prince of preachers, I believe, once said, there's a, a moment in the congregation when you're preaching and, and people move from taking notes to beholding the wondrous mystery of Christ. I have no doubt that that's happened today. As we talk about covenant, I see you writing and it's legal, it's this. It's like the white amen is what we say. Like, mm, yeah, okay, and you take notes. That's how I understand, that's, that's how we roll, I get it. But there's also this moment where I also got to see you go, I want that. Like that's who Christ is. That's what the text is calling you to see, that Jesus is the better hope. That's what this pastor who wrote the book of Hebrews is proclaiming. He's better than the law. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than believe in him. See the hope. Jesus is cut off legally, cut off spiritually. He upholds the covenant. He can do no more. How do I know, Lord? Oh, because he sent his son, church, to walk out his covenants, perfect, to go to the cross, to bear the guilt and shame of us and also the consequence for our own sin and then oh happy Easter he resurrects to new life how do we know because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ which we can see historically speaking as well and then the last thing is this you just got to trust the gospel why don't you guys stand with me while these guys are getting ready stand up with me I'll usher us into communion here the third point here is you just got to trust the gospel Listen, that doesn't mean believing everything about the gospel. Like, of course we believe it's true, but there are moments and seasons and times where because of the flesh, some things are hard to believe. And so you pray like crazy that the Lord will help you to trust the gospel. And so I can say to you today that he is asking you to do that thing. He's asking you to trust that you cannot do it on your own. He's asking you to trust that you cannot save yourself no matter how hard you try. He's asking you to trust that you're Faith will most certainly waver until you are with him in eternity. He's asking you to trust and see and taste that he's just good. Like not for the guy or gal sitting across the aisle from you, but for you. Like he's good for you. And he's worth trusting in. He's asking you to trust and taste, taste and trust that he can in fact redeem. There's some of you in the room just still skeptical, man. But how do you sit here week in and week out and see what the author of Hebrews has said and not have your affections stirred? And even more so, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is wooing some of you now to, out of skepticism and into trusting. I mean, there's a baptismal up here. We can get real Baptist real quick. Like the Ethiopian eunuch who said, how, how will I know? And then the gospel is shared. He said, what do I do? He said, get baptized. We don't have any water. He said, there's a mud puddle right there. Like, there's a redneck horse trough right there. Maybe today the Lord wants to move you. I think he does from skepticism to genuine trust. For those of you that are saints in the room, seasoned perhaps, you've been tasting as your pastor told you a minute ago, you've been tasting but you haven't been trusting. You've been tasting but you haven't actually stepped towards the goodness of, of having the better pastry to use Pastor Jeff's language here. I think today is the day, church. I have no doubt that there's things in your mind and in your heart right now that the Lord has been prompting in you in the book of Hebrews. I have no doubt about it. And he's saying, today's the day. Right, to quote Mark Sigma, today we sound the alarm. It's time to sound the alarm. It's time to run to the feet, to the hands of Jesus. So I want to do is, um, 
with an understanding that I can tell you to respond. I don't want to put any, uh, I don't want to put it all on you because we, we established earlier you guys are a bunch of liars. So what I want to do as a fellow liar, chief among sinners, let me lead you from tasting to trusting here for a moment, okay? Why don't you guys bow your heads with me and pray with me. Let me pray over you, but I'm going to pray for you specifically. Father in heaven, we come before your throne room because we can. So God, we're just, we're coming to behold your majesty. And so God, as we did jokingly confess earlier, I want to now lead us to genuinely confess that we are in fact liars. We lie to people all the time. Anybody with a social media account, lying to them, showing them facade because we don't believe the gospel in those moments. We'll lie to our spouse today. We'll lie to our kids and call it parenting. We are liars, Lord. And you're the only one that is truthful and honest and good. Your character, your covenant, to complement one another. Ours does not. And so God, with a spirit of confession, I want to pray and ask you, Lord, that you would reveal where lying takes us and do so, God, by now, if you would, show us a battered Jesus on the cross because that's where our sin takes us. That's the consequence of not keeping the covenant, God, obliterated flesh. That's what you do for us. That's what it looks like to be cut, spiritually cut, physically. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to each one of them in the room what your son looked like as he died for them? Not in theory, but in reality, that he died for them. God, as we behold you on the cross, Lord, would you now lead us to a spirit of repentance? Confession is good, but it's incomplete. And so, God, we need to turn from sin and turn to you. So on behalf of your church body here, Lord, may I ask you to usher in a spirit of repentance. God, show us where we have lied and we just brushed it under the rug. Maybe right now we're living a life of lies. God, reveal those to us. Help us to come clean, Lord. And as part of that repentance, give us now the reminder that you've washed us clean. That the very word, the very covenant, the very character put on flesh died in our place as our substitute so that we could be given your righteousness. Even in the midst of our lives, God, you only see us as righteous. Praise the Lord. So God, I, I pray that you would help us flee from irreverent babble and lies as the Bible says today. Help us to respond to your gospel as if it is good. I pray for those in the room right now, God, that are not believers, but oh, they feel the tug, they feel the wooing of you as a good father. And while you are their, their creator, God, you are not their father yet, but you're calling them home. And so God, I pray today that relationships in the room could be made new, God. Could you redeem them? Help them, give them the understanding that they don't have to know everything, but in faith, God, they can respond to you, and that's enough. We'll help them with the rest of it. For those in the room, God, that are saints, that proclaim who you are day in and day out, God, remind us we do not need to pursue your word and be licentious. We don't need to just let it lie and do nothing. We don't need to be legalistic. We don't need to earn our salvation, but rather, God, you've called us to rest. 
God, help us to be imitators of those who have come before us as the scriptures call us to. Help us, God, to not not just ride the coattails of other saints' sacrifices, but rather, God, with a great deal of unction, charge the gates of hell with the passion of Christ. Call us to obedience, call us to faithfulness, Lord. Thank you for your, the opportunity to come into this throne room now and make these requests, God. We're not asking you to do anything. You've not promised to us in and through Christ Jesus. So in this moment, we get to pray on faith that your character will remain the same, that your covenant faithfulness will remain the same, God, and that we, when we're done today, will look better for it. We thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and your goodness over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. As you come forward in a moment with, for communion, God, let me, or guys, let me invite you to recognize the bread that is Christ's body broken for you and the cup that's representing Christ's blood and spilt on your behalf. Look here. Communion is a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness as well as his character. There is nothing more you bring to the altar other than yourself. And so as you come, you take and you feast and let it foreshadow the goodness of the Lord that you're going to get to experience for eternity more. We love you. Come forward when you're ready.